Hello and welcome to the third ancillary of Frontier of Infinity, The Urge to Pioneer. In the last episode of this show, we discussed the Mercury 7, the first class of American astronauts. We covered their selection process, the criteria they were expected to meet, and discussed their debut at the Dolly Madison House in Washington, D.C. We also went over a very brief history of each astronaut, but in this episode, I want to talk a little more about what drove them to become astronauts in the first place. In the late 50s, no one had any idea what space travel was going to be like. There were concerns that an astronaut would lose their sanity looking down at the Earth, and there was absolutely no telling what effects weightlessness might have on the body. The Mercury 7, and eventually their Soviet counterparts in the Cosmonaut Corps, not only accepted these risks, but also left what were in many cases successful and promising careers in the military to join a project that might not go anywhere at all. Even if you qualified to be an astronaut, taking that leap was not something that everyone would do. But luckily for us, we have a very useful source for discerning what exactly motivated the Mercury 7 to take that plunge. In 1962, Simon and Schuster published a book entitled We 7, which is a collection of essays written by the Mercury 7 themselves. In the early part of the book, each astronaut writes about the circumstances that led him to join Project Mercury. In this episode, we're going to briefly look at each man's justification for becoming an astronaut in their own words. It's my hope that doing so will help to flesh out these men as people. After all, they're going to feature quite heavily in the story moving forward, and I think it'll benefit all of us to have a better understanding of who they were on a personal level. As we covered in the last episode, John Glenn was born in Ohio, and while he didn't develop a fondness for flying as early as some of his colleagues, he did take to building model airplanes out of balsa wood during a scarlet fever outbreak in his hometown. To keep him from catching the disease, he was made to stay indoors, something most of us can probably relate to at this point, which meant he had a lot of free time on his hands and not much to do with it. No Netflix in those days. He fostered this interest in aviation throughout his high school days, before it eventually drove him to learn to fly while he was studying chemical engineering at Muskingum College. He did this through a government program that had been set up shortly before America became involved in World War II. When his training was complete, he joined the Army Air Corps, but when he didn't receive any orders, he instead signed on for the Navy. He writes, quote, it's just possible that I've been AWOL from the Army ever since, end quote. After he received additional training from the Navy, he switched branches again to the Marine Corps, in which he served throughout the remainder of the war. After the war ended and John had switched his vocation from combat to flight testing, he was actually called in to help NASA before they had begun the astronaut search. 
NASA needed some test pilots to run through their spaceflight simulators, as well as to spend a stint in the Johnsonville centrifuge to gather data on the physical stresses of spaceflight. Glenn did all of this, and he had a good time while he was at it. Of course, he had no idea at the time that the whole adventure was foreshadowing for what was to come. Before he had worked with NASA, Glenn had begun to develop an interest in space, reading up on the topic as it became more pronounced in the public mindset. And he was eventually called back to help out some more on the early designs for the Mercury capsule, as he had some idea of what a space pilot riding in one would experience, since he had taken part in the centrifuge research. When he was finally called in to try out for the astronaut program, Glenn cites a desire to be on the leading edge of aviation as a major motivation. In addition, he felt that he was well qualified, between his experience as a combat pilot as well as a test pilot. Serving as an astronaut, he reasoned, would be an excellent use of his talents. He writes, quote, I did know that space travel was at the frontier of my profession and I naturally wanted to be in on it. But the gratification and simple pride over the fact that I might have enough brains and stamina and experience to be chosen was the least important of my reasons for wanting to try. I felt that many of my experiences had added up to prepare me for the kind of challenge that Project Mercury presented, and that I would be remiss if I did not volunteer to put some of this background to good use. End quote. He navigated the gauntlet of physical and psychological tests before he had to wait almost two weeks to hear if he had been selected. He was at his desk at work when the call came in. Glenn writes, quote, I was very proud. I could not help that. But I also felt a certain humility. End quote. That night, he and his wife celebrated not only his selection for Mercury, but their wedding anniversary as well. Scott Carpenter was in a very different position when he made the decision to try to become an astronaut. He was working for the Navy at the time, and was not pleased with where his career had taken him. He had started flying because of the outbreak of the Second World War, but before that he had wanted to be a rancher, being very fond of athletics and the outdoors. But when the United States was thrown into conflict, he answered the call and signed on to the Navy. During his tenure there, he received specialized training in navigation and communication systems, eventually qualifying to become an intelligence officer. Before he received his invitation to try out for Mercury, he had been selected to serve on an aircraft carrier, an assignment he was not thrilled with. For one, it would take him away from his family for long periods of time. And secondly, it would keep him chained to a desk where he couldn't fly and he very much enjoyed flying. Mercury seemed his ticket out, but he discussed the matter with his wife Renee before making the decision to go through the testing process. She agreed, and he accepted the invitation. After the tests were completed, he received word that he had been selected just one day before his ship was due to leave port. He rushed back on board and offloaded his belongings. But when he told the ship's captain that he had been transferred to NASA, the captain almost didn't let him go. But fortunately, a call from NASA straightened the situation out, and Carpenter finally got the career change he had been looking for.
But there was one more factor that influenced Carpenter's decision. He writes that taking part in Project Mercury was his chance for immortality. Several family friends had asked his father why Scott would want to do something like becoming an astronaut. Carpenter writes, quote, I could have told them that I volunteered for a number of reasons. One of these, quite frankly, was that I thought this was a chance for immortality. Pioneering in space was something I would willingly give my life for. End quote. Unlike Carpenter, Gordon Cooper did take to flying from a very young age. His father was a pilot who owned an older model Commander biplane, in which he would take his son flying. Cooper also writes that his father knew Amelia Earhart and Wiley Post, famous aviators of the day, and that he would sometimes listen in on their conversations. In his teens, Gordon took formal flight lessons, which eventually led him to become a flyer in World War II. After the war, he began to become interested in space when he heard that the McDonnell Company had been awarded a contract for the construction of the Mercury crew capsule. He was also a longtime fan of science fiction, who enjoyed reading Buck Rogers comics. Interestingly, though, he also cites a fascination with UFOs as a reason he became curious about space. Quote, I also had the idea that there might be some interesting forms of life out in space for us to discover and get acquainted with. I don't believe in fairy tales, but as far as I'm concerned, there have been far too many unexplained examples of unidentified flying objects sighted around this Earth for us to rule out the possibility that some form of life exists beyond our world. I certainly don't pretend that the examples we know about necessarily prove anything, but the fact that many experienced pilots had reported strange sights which cannot be easily explained did heighten my curiosity about space, end quote. All of these interests collided, and he subjected himself to the selection tests. He writes that the tests conducted at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base were the worst, where they were, quote, isolated, vibrated, whirled, heated, frozen, fatigued, and run to high altitude, end quote. After the tests were over, he was so confident that he would be selected that he told his boss to begin looking for a replacement for his position at Edwards Air Force Base, and prepared his family to move. In the end, it turned out that his intuition was correct, and when word came down that he had been selected, he and his family were ready to move right away. In contrast to Gordon Cooper, Gus Grisham had never taken an interest in science fiction, specifically mentioning that he was never into Buck Rogers. In fact, he wasn't even interested in spaceflight when he first heard about it. He thought that it sounded more like a stunt than a serious scientific endeavor. I mean, what was really the point of flinging some poor soul into space? But that opinion began to change the more he heard about Project Mercury. For one, he had harbored a lifelong love for engineering, writing that he had been interested in the discipline since before he even knew what it was called. But it was ultimately his pioneering instincts that led him to join the manned space program. He writes that when a friend asked him why he wanted to fly into space, he answered that if he had been born 150 years in the past, 
he probably would have been one of the pioneers headed westward. Some people are just that type, always looking for the cutting edge with a desire to be right there on it. Gus Grisham was one of those people. He was also interested in how joining Mercury might better his skills as a pilot. He wrote, I figured there was a lot I could learn about flying in this program if I got to go into orbit first, or even if I got to go last, and I decided that maybe I could help the program along a bit, end quote. Walter Schirra was another who had flying baked into his very spirit. His father was a flying ace in World War I, and after that war ended, he had returned home and continued flying in an air circus with his wife, who would perform stunts like walking along the wings of the aircraft while it was in flight. Unsurprisingly, Walter inherited this fascination for the air, and was eager to accept an opportunity to push the boundaries of aviation. What was more, his national pride ushered him in the same direction. Walter had served in the Korean War as a fighter pilot, where the Russian-built MiG fighter planes were able to fly higher than their American counterparts. This stung Walter, as he was often required to fly defensively against the higher-flying enemy planes. He wrote, You only have two cheeks to turn, and they get kind of worn out. At first, he wasn't terribly interested in Project Mercury, and his first briefing on the topic didn't do much to sway him as he was unwilling to toss away his career, which he very much enjoyed. But as the briefings continued and he learned more, he realized that the same desire that drove him as a test pilot was largely what propelled Mercury forward. He wrote, I guess what finally decided me was that same instinct that had inspired me to be a test pilot. This was to improve the flying breed and push the frontiers out so that the whole nation would benefit. End quote. Space was a new frontier where the Americans were being outdone, but he had a chance to help put the U.S. on top. Alan Shepard had been interested in machines since he was a boy. He had a five-horsepower outboard motor that he enjoyed taking apart and putting back together in his spare time. But he was also interested in flying, as he and a few friends used to help out around the hangar at the local airport in exchange for rides in the aircraft. In the Navy, he took on several technical projects, helping to develop the Navy's in-flight refueling system and testing the first angled flight deck on an aircraft carrier. When he was selected to participate in Project Mercury, he cited a desire to serve his country as the major motivation. Quote, I thought it was definitely a chance to serve my country, and I guess everyone feels an urge to do something no one else has ever done, the urge to pioneer, end quote. Before making the decision to go through with the project, he conferenced with both his wife, Louise, as well as his commanding officer. His CO said that he didn't think Allen had anything to lose from a career standpoint, and that it might actually have benefited the Navy to have some personnel on the space project. After all, it was becoming apparent that spaceflight was the major new field in aviation. After testing, Shepard wasn't so sure he had performed well. To make matters worse, he and Gordon Cooper had the longest time to wait, 
as they were among the first candidates assessed. When he received word that he had been chosen, he and his wife were preparing for a trip to Boston to visit family. When they saw Alan's mother at the airport, he cried, Guess what, mother? I'm getting out of the Navy! At which point he had to quickly clarify the reason why to ease her shock. Deke Slayton was another who came late to flying. As a boy, he figured that he would become a farmer, but like a few of his fellows, he took to flying with the outbreak of World War II. After the war, he served as an engineer with Boeing, but once he returned to the Air Force as a test pilot, he found what he thought was the perfect job. He was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base, and felt as though his position made excellent use of his skills and experience. He held that position for four years, before a new regulation was passed which limited him to five years in that job. His days as a test pilot at Edwards were numbered. Project Mercury gave him a new field to move on to, and to make things even better, it was truly an innovative program. He writes, quote, I could tell from working on some of our hottest planes that we were just about reaching the limit on what a conventional aircraft could do, end quote. After expounding on this idea a bit, he continues, quote, I had just about settled down to take a two-year course in astronautics and spaceflight to prepare myself for the next step when Project Mercury came along, so it was a real fine coincidence for me, end quote. However, at first, he wasn't convinced that NASA would truly need experienced pilots to take part in Project Mercury. Why couldn't they strap just anyone to the top of the rocket and light it off? What did it matter whether or not they could fly if the trajectory of the capsule was decided ahead of time? But as he attended the briefings and learned more about the program, that changed. He realized that Mercury would be impossible to complete without experienced pilots. It was a good use of his skill set, and he was on board. The Mercury 7 were quite different from one another in many ways. Their military backgrounds, their experience, and their training was rather diverse. And this was by design. NASA didn't want seven identical men. They needed a wide range of skills and experience. But even so, many of the motivations that pushed these men to sign on for the space program were rather similar. Once they were selected, the astronauts needed to learn everything they could about the mission and the equipment they were to use to accomplish it. But it became obvious early on that Mercury was too complex an endeavor for all seven men to try and become experts in every field. So they split up the work between themselves. Deke Slayton wrote an essay about this process called A Job for Everyone, wherein he discusses how each astronaut's specialized skills and training decided where they got assigned. Scott Carpenter, for instance, had special training with communications and navigational aids, and thus he was assigned to contribute to and become an expert in the comms and navigation systems on the spacecraft. Alan Shepard focused on the tracking range and recovery teams that would fish the spacecraft out of the ocean on splashdown. His experience dealing with the Navy brass got him that assignment. Since John Glenn had worked in aircraft design and testing, he was given the layout of the instrument panel. 
Wally Shira was assigned to help with the design of the pressure suit that the men would wear in space, as well as the capsule's life support mechanisms. Gus Grisham had extensive experience with technical engineering and was handed responsibility for the control systems used to fly the spacecraft. Finally, Gordon Cooper was sent to Huntsville to keep tabs on the Redstone boosters, while Deke Slayton kept an eye on the Atlas rocket. This division of labor allowed the astronauts to more efficiently learn what they needed to in order to do their jobs, and it gave them direct input into the design and testing process. When a problem arose that concerned all seven of them, they would hold what Walter Schirra called a seance, where they'd all work together to come up with a solution and then pitch that solution to the relevant department or contractor. In doing so, the men who would fly the Mercury spacecraft got a chance to shape it as well. Hopefully, this gives you a better idea of what drove these men to join Mercury, as well as how they came together after their selection to work toward their common goal. When we return next week, we're going to continue with them on their journey toward the heavens, and see what the Soviets have been up to on the other side of the world. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll see you among the stars.